0: We're very lucky to have Professor Arun Zion from the University of British Columbia, who uh, has braved volcanoes to be here today. He is a faculty associate at the Peter Wall Institute for Advanced Studies. He's a specialist in evolutionary and cognitive approaches to religious thought and behaviour. And uh, he's going to read his paper on religion as parochial altruism.
1: And then we're going to have a commentary from Professor John Wilkins of Bond University. So take it away, word. Thank you, Steve. Uh, thanks for this invitation. Hi, everyone. Uh, so I, I was 10 years old when, when uh, I was uh, sent by my father to be an altar boy in, a, in the Armenian church, in a local Armenian church in Beirut, Lebanon. That's where I grew up. And, um, and that probably was one of my earliest experiences with religion. And as people were doing these this incredibly old, ancient, thousand-year-old rituals in the churches, people outside of the churches and the mosques were, of course, killing each other. Uh, something like, uh, I believe, uh, in 15 years of the Lebanese civil wars, 100,000 people were killed in a population of 4 million. So probably not as big of a percentage as in... Uh, hunter-gatherer societies, but still quite a bit of uh, death and destruction. So, from that, from that point, I was always curious about how is it that, uh, on one hand, people were getting a lot of meaning and, and, uh, and um, social significance from religion. At the same time, it seemed like it was also a source of a lot of conflict. So, uh, here I am, 30 years later, standing in and trying to um, explain religion from an evolutionary perspective, and this The talk I'm giving is an attempt to, uh, a very incomplete attempt to understand how religion uh, evolved and how that could have contributed to uh, religious conflict. I want to thank my collaborators. Uh, There could be Jeremy Gingis from the New School of Social Research, and Ian Hansen, a former student of mine who's now at CUNY, And uh, 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 the research I'm going to show you today about uh, religion and support for suicide attacks is a collaboration with them. Uh, My current student, Azim Sharif and Will Gervais, are also uh, uh, fantastic collaborators on a lot of the other research I'm going to show you today. Okay. So I'm going to start with with the uh, idea that if you want to understand how um, religious conflict comes to be, we need to understand and at least take seriously the idea that uh, intergroup competition has been a significant factor in human genetic and (coughs) cultural evolution. This is something that Dominic also talked about, so I'll keep it brief. So the idea here is that uh, traits that we we can call parochial altruism, the combination of sacrifice for the in-group as well as hostility towards out-groups, might have been selected as a result of uh, uh, this, uh, the intergroup fund competition and, and violence and warfare to the extent that relig- organized religions or elements in organized religions can promote uh, social solidarity, cooperation and cohesiveness we would expect of course that uh, these same processes should also play a role in intergroup uh, conflict and the one, the thing that I like about this approach is that it's, it's it's kind of simple and elegant. So the same process explains not only cooperation and uh, social cohesion within groups, it also explains intergroup conflict. So in that kind of my talk, I will first spend a few minutes uh, to to present uh, my approach to understanding how uh, religion, uh, as we know it, might have evolved. Um, uh, and I'm going to talk about the effects of religion on cooperation and trust. I won't spend too much time on this because I want to spend most of my talk about the the topic, the theme of this conference, which is uh, the topic of how is that religion can be a divisive force. Um, And there are two parts to this this aspect or this part of the talk. Um, I want to present some evidence from uh, lab studies um, showing that uh, even though religion, religion, and religious thinking can encourage prosociality, this prosociality is not extended universally. Uh, contrary to theological prescriptions uh, in that regard, and at least some theological prescriptions, in the, in this line of work, I'm going to show you some evidence uh, on the economic gains and how is it that in-group, out-group manipulations can can change how religion relates to generosity. I also talk about. Uh, the fascinating uh, case of anti-Atheist prejudice. Why is that in religious societies, atheists are um, uh, are uh, the object of prejudice? And uh, I'll propose a psychological explanation that falls pretty, pretty much directly out of the evolutionary story I'm going to present today. And then uh, uh, last but not least, I'll, I'll talk about the second way by which religion can be a source of conflict. So the first one, in the first line of work, I'm going to show you, the uh, present evidence to, for the idea that prosociality that comes out of religion is not universal so that as a result we can get uh, conflict or at least prejudice or intolerance out of that the second way to think about uh, religion and conflict that I think can give us some analytic leverage is to look at different aspects of religion and see whether or not there are different elements the different elements of this very complicated set of phenomena that we call religion have different implications for um, for um, conflict and, and uh, parochial altruism in particular, in this case I'm going to talk about support for suicide attacks suicide attacks being probably the ultimate and the most extreme example of parochial altruism where the attacker sacrifices his life for, for the group Excuse me, while killing members of an outgroup that is considered threatening so first uh, I'm going to do some selective evidence of uh, religion and prosociality um, before, because that will set the stage for the second part of the talk about um, division the, my starting point uh, again this is something that uh, there is some similarities to what I'm going to say here that, uh, with Dominic's talk which is good because then that means that uh, I don't have to go into too much detail but here is the problem that I think that organized division solves um, and the, problem, the solution I think is a cultural evolutionary story from, uh, at least in my view as opposed to genetic uh, individual genetic selection story. Although genetic selection, of course, contributes to religious uh, thinking uh, uh, in, in terms of making it possible. So the problem is the following. Uh, human beings are extremely unusual in the animal kingdom in, its, in their extreme cooperativeness. And the, the extreme altruism or cooperativeness we see is uh, unusual in the sense that we, do, we cooperate uh, with complete strangers in a way that we don't see in any other species. So what, how, how does that... Why is that? And, uh, and how, is, how is religion a solution to this problem? Here's is, here is a very quick uh, analysis of the problem. Uh, we know t- very, two very important uh, basic uh, um, strategies for, for, uh, that produce altruism in, in, uh, um, in organisms. One is kin altruism, of course, that produces cooperation among kin. The other one is reciprocal altruism that produces cooperation among strangers uh, or genetic, uh, unrelated individuals who are cooperating uh, with the infinite time horizon, horizon uh, and reputation are are being built and taken into account. None of these two mechanisms that are very well understood can explain uh, the problem we have here, which is cooperation in very large anonymous groups. So the idea that uh, I have been working with in the last few years is that, uh, so so here is how how it works. So we have cognitive biases that have made, which may have given rise to belief in supernatural agents, for example, mentalizing, theory of mind, uh, anthropomorphism, which allow us to be able to imagine agents, Uh, and sometimes agents which are not maybe physically present. From this basic cognitive module, we can get different kinds of cultural outputs. Some of these cultural outputs can be uh, more or less useful. And, and so this is a cultural evolutionary story, and the, the big, uh, at least the big important uh, point here is that the idea that um, if a group comes up with the idea of immortalizing supernatural agents, so supernatural agents who are uh, to some extent omniscient. To some extent powerful, and are they are concerned about human affairs, very much like what Dominic was talking about, can do supernatural monitoring. Uh, supernatural monitoring allows people to uh, cooperate with each other and, uh, and facilitates extended cooperation uh, in very large groups, because basically societies in this way outsource social monitoring duties to these agents. So even if no one is watching, if people sincerely believe that um, the ancestors are watching, if God is watching, then people are going to be more likely to be cooperative, uh, even to strangers, and that could sustain high levels of cooperation in these kinds of large-scale um, uh, and anonymous situations. Uh, that, in turn, uh, can facilitate the cultural spread of these beliefs, right? So as societies become uh, um, larger and larger, the belief in moralizing gods be- become, spreads more because there are more people to believe in them, and in fact, if you look at the numbers today, the majority of the world, even though this is a cultural invention, I would argue, it's not a, it's, we're not genetically adapted to believe in moralizing gods, um, the cultural invention of this belief has been wildly <coughs> successful and the majority of the world today believes in some kind of a moralizing God. Uh, costly commitment is an important element of this story, which I won't spend too much time on, but we need some form of uh, uh, costly behaviors to make sure that uh, uh, there are a number of reasons for that. One possibility is that uh, we need to keep free riders away from invading these cooperative groups. Another possibility is <coughs> that costly behaviors could be an index of, uh, of belief commitment, which often can be easily faked. Okay. So uh, there's a number of evidence that supports uh, at least uh, uh, a version of this argument. And one of them, Dominic Johnson presented already, Uh, we find that uh, indeed larger societies, large group size correlates with uh, the prevalence of moralizing gods. If that's true, then we should also expect if this is a causal effect, then um, inducing belief in, in, in a moralizing god should increase generosity among strangers. So this is an experiment that uh, we have done Zi um, uh, Sharrif and I did, in which we take took advantage of of the of a very basic simple uh priming me- methodology in psychology where we can actually experimentally manipulate uh, whether or not some people are thinking about God in a given situation, and then we have we gave people the opportunity to play the dictator game, one shot anonymous. Um, that's one condition and then in the other condition we have, uh, we have uh, also a secular prime where we prime people with concepts of secular institutions that uh, imply generosity or at least good behavior such as court, jury, judge, etc. In the religious condition the primes were things like God, um, spirit, uh, sacred, etc. And then we guess we subjects $10 to play with um, and the results... Well, here's the interesting thing is uh, we look, looked in, in the results was two ways. One is the question, did the prime have an effect? But the other interesting question, of course, is do people who say, who, people who report to be religious, people who report having belief, strong belief in God, are they more generous? So, first, let me show you the results on that. Uh, the results are quite null. So, people who are believers are not statistically different from people who are non believers. And this actually, this. Uh, Finding is quite common. We find this a lot in, in these experiments where self-reported religiosity, self-reported belief does not seem to have a big impact on uh, people's behaviors in these games. And this is a, consistent with a lot of research that Dan Batson has done uh, over the years uh, where he also finds similar patterns. You don't find any effects unless there's some kind of egoistic motivation that is being, uh, being activated to, to appear for social or look social. Um, this is uh, might be different in, in, when we look at it cross-culturally, but at least in, our, in Western culture, this is the pattern. What about the, the priming effect? The priming effect works quite well. Uh, in fact, the offer doubles in the religious prime condition. People are much more generous. Uh, even though the prime is implicit, people have to report no awareness of Of uh, the the fact that this is a religious uh, study where we induce religious thinking, still people are more generous the secular prime also has the same effect, so this is important because it shows that religion might have been uh, historically uh, a very important uh, cultural institution to encourage prosociality amongst religious, but it's not the only thing, there are other ways to do this to achieve the same, it's just that Uh, secular institutions are very recent in human history. We're talking about reliable secular institutions that that people trust, people uh, uh, obey, are quite recent inventions. So uh, historically when there were no secular institutions religion was the only game in town. And even cross-culturally today most cultures in the world don't have reliable secular institutions. So in in, in that sense also for them religion and religiously induced prosociality is the only game in town. Now, one important element of this hypothesis is that uh, the reason that people were more pro-social when we, in, we induced religious thinking is that people uh, it, it, it's supernatural monitoring, right? When people are feeling like their, their behavior is being monitored, if you're, if you've, if this, then the situation is no longer anonymous, really. If someone is watching you, you're nicer. And we know that from a lot of research in psychology and behavioral economics, whenever we put cameras, we put people in front of a mirror, uh, if there's some, someone watching, people are always nicer. We also know this from everyday life, of course. So, we, so if this reasoning, if this hypothesis is correct, then merely activating religious thinking should increase the sense of being watched. So we can dissociate prosociality from, the, from this supernatural monitoring hypothesis, and when we do that, we do actually find evidence that it, it is the case that people report. When we do, basically, we do religious priming like we did before, and then we ask people uh, we ask people to to rate statements like this one. Right now I am concerned about what other people think of me. And in fact, you can see here, this is the critical condition here. Uh, this is called public self-awareness in social psychology. People report greater public self-awareness in the religious prime condition. But there are no effects for private self-awareness with internal states and no effects for awareness of surroundings where these were these just controlled. Uh, dependent measures that we put there just to make sure that we, uh, the effect is selective so this is nice support for the supernatural monitoring hypothesis uh, I want to move on now and show you one other piece of uh, evidence that seems to show a link between religion religiosity and uh, prosociality in this case uh, it's, a, it's a trust game ex- experiment that was done by Jonathan Tan and, and Claudia Vogel economists uh, they use the standard trust game. Uh, I'll explain it briefly for those of you who don't know. In the trust game, uh, there's a proposer and a responder. The proposer is given a certain amount of money, let's say $10. And then the proposer has the option of transferring some, any of this of this amount, any, any or none of this amount, to a responder. Then the responder... Uh, let's say the proposer uh, transfers all of the money to the responder. Then the responder has the option or makes the decision of reciprocating, it, right? Now the interesting thing in this in this game is that the incentive is is that uh, when the, any amount is transferred, is tripled. Okay, so the ten dollars turns into thirty dollars. So now, if the responder reciprocates, and if was if the responder wants to be fair, uh, she would. Uh, split the money in half and then return the the other half to the proposer everybody ends up with more money. So the more people trust each other the better off they are. But of course uh, the catch is that if the respondent does not reciprocate we're screwed. Right? They they take the money and run. So uh, Cannon Vogel used this paradigm and simply added religion to it. So if the, the, if the proposer has information about the respondent's religiosity, would that affect how much money they transfer? Would they trust the religious person more? It's a very nice measure of actual behavior instead of self-report measures. And in fact, that's what they found. So uh, this is a bit of a complicated graph. So for simplicity, first ignore uh, all the bars except the yellow bar. And uh, if you look at the yellow bar, uh, pay attention to numbers here. The numbers basically denote... Uh, how religious the responder was. So one means the responder was not religious at all. Five means the responder was very religious. And what you can see is that people are generally transferring more money to the more religious individual. Uh, So there's an overall effect of religiosity on how much people trust the the, the responder. Uh, You also find that if you split the, the, the sample by how religious the proposer is, high on high religion or low on religion, you find also get an interaction, meaning that if you are religious and you're playing a religious person, you're especially likely to trust the, 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 the respondent. What's interesting is that non-religious people are not uh, showing the opposite bias. They're just weaker. They have just they have a weaker bias towards, it, towards trusting the religious, religious person. Which, which is quite interesting and also fits with some other data I will show you in a minute about anti 80s prejudice. So it seems like anti-Atesis prejudice is a one-unidirectional uh, phenomenon. It doesn't seem like it goes the other way uh, as far as we can see from our own data. Okay, so that's, there's a lot of other data that speaks to the religion and prosociality, but this is a, a bit of a sampling that gives us an idea. So religion can promote trust, can promote uh, uh, cooperation levels among people who are unrelated otherwise. It could it could build social cohesion uh, that could be advantageous for groups. And as we saw earlier, uh, Rich sources has also nice data showing that these mechanisms presumably then lead to the fact that under difficult conditions, religions outperform secular groups, um, although that may not be the case in modern societies. So what about the dark side of religion? What about the fact that uh, there is so much religious conflict and religion is tied to intolerance uh, you know there's this paradox of course we're dealing with which is, which is the fact that on one hand religion also seems to be a source of uh, non-violent struggle so Gandhi or Dalai Lama where they seem like they're inspired by religion to, to, make, to promote change that's non-violent but also we have someone like Osama bin Laden who uses religion for violent ends and since I'm in Oxford, I thought that I should quote Richard Dawkins on this. Uh, Professor Dawkins has famously said, there is, this fate, this is a chapter to itself in the annals of war technology on an even footing with the longbow, the warhorse, the tank, and the hydrogen bomb. Of course, there is the, you know, counterclaims here I... I Pick Professor Dawkins against the Dalai Lama. Uh, religion is, is, Dalai Lama said, religion is the remedy to help reduce the conflict and suffering in the world, not another source of conflict. So what's going on here? So I think that uh, one way to think about this, as, I, as I, I said in my beginning of my talk, is that perhaps what's going on is that religion can promote prosociality but tools up to a point. And when there is there is a limit, when there is a boundary to how much the, the uh, prosociality is extended, then you get the opposite of prosociality. You might get uh, either indifference, or worse, you might get intolerance or hostility p- towards people who are not uh, uh, are not uh, considered uh, uh, individuals that are under the same supernatural juris- jurisdiction to which the group belongs to. So, theologically correct argument is that you know. You know let 's say take christianity let 's take the famous Sam- Samaritan parable where uh, Jesus preaches universal compassion universal altruism so that 's the, that's the theological position, but my argument is that from a point of view of evolution from the point of view of what is psychologically plausible that's just not possible. people cannot be infinitely compassion compassion excuse me or altruistic towards everyone, uh, otherwise uh, you Groups may not be able to uh, survive and, and prosper. Um, so, so, this is, so, um, so we did a, uh, another version of the dictator game experiment that I talked about earlier uh, with a Good Samaritan twist on it. So Daniel Batson has done the famous Good Samaritan study uh, decades ago. This is a, a bit of an update or, or a twist on it. So in this experiment we we did the same thing again we had uh, we had uh, Christian participants in this case actually all our participants were Christian we selected them that way uh, because of, because of the good Samaritan component then we did the religious priming as before and then we added three more conditions in the other conditions uh, in one condition subjects thought that they were playing with someone who' was also Christian in, a, in a, and then finally in, the, in another in the fourth condition, one, two. So, the, so there's a control condition there's a prime condition without information about uh, that who the target is that's just like the previous experiment then there was a condition where the subject uh, believes that uh, she's playing with another Christian so that's the in-group condition <coughs> finally in the fourth condition the subject uh, believes that she's playing with a Muslim the study was done in Vancouver um, and here are the results so first you, you notice that so this is basically a replication of the old finding. Okay, so when we prime people with religion, they become more pro-social, that's fine. Then we add information about the, 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 the target, now the target is in-group member, is a Christian, and now we max out on pro-sociality. In these experiments, you can't get more than 50%. So you, there are no Mother Teresa's. Uh, people can go as far as sharing, splitting the money, but never in our culture, at least with students, or, or adults we <laughs> get uh, more than 50% in some other cultures uh, my colleague uh, Joe Henrik, who does cross-cultural experiments with, the, with economic games he finds that people can go even over the, uh, over the board and they, can offer, they offer more than 50% but never in our culture so this is a ceiling effect so basically what we're finding is that religious for sociality can be maxed out if you are thinking about God and you're playing with someone of your own religion and then, of course, the most interesting, uh, perhaps the most interesting condition here is the out condition, where as Christians think that they're playing with, with a Muslim. Now, according to the Good Samaritan principle, they should continue to be pro-social, universally pro-social, but of course they're not. Um, the, the, the rate declines quite a bit here, significantly uh, lower than this condition. Uh, here, the good news is that people are not hostile towards the Muslim, in the sense that the priming is not making people less likely to, uh, to be generous towards the Muslim compared to no priming, but it's no different from a control condition. Okay, so, so there's definitely a bias, but the bias is not as extreme as one would fear. Can you just are these all statistically different? Uh, this Deporably is significantly different from this. This is significant from this, but these are not, these three are not significantly different from each and other. The first and the fourth are not
0: significantly different.
1: Correct. Okay. So, so religious, priming someone with, really Christians with religion and having them play with a Muslim is like not priming them at all. Yeah.
0: I'm going to ask, how did you give the information about
1: the religion uh, They got a profile of the, of the subjects uh, that they thought they were playing with. And then we, we had a lot of information that was irrelevant. Like, we matched people on age and ethnicity. Okay. So if you're a white 30-year-old, you thought you were playing with a white 30-year-old, and then we embedded information about the person, person's religion in that. Okay, so this is one way that I think um, you, you get religious intolerance or, in, or conflict, is, is, that, is that, that we have limits to how prosocial religion encourages people to be. Uh, another extension of this argument is, is of course, uh, anti-Atheist prejudice. Now, anti-Atheist prejudice is quite puzzling, and it's quite strong. So uh, I'll give you some, some uh, examples of this, uh, and then think about why would this be. Um, so Bob Sherman, who's an a American atheist, who, uh, who was uh, who once was able to ask a question to George W. Bush, the, the elder, and he said, surely you recognize the equal citizenship of and patriotism of Americans who atheists. And George W. Bush said, no, I don't, that, I don't know that atheists should be considered as citizens, nor should they be considered patriots. This is one nation under God. Now, of course, uh, this dislike of atheism goes uh, way back into history. So I'll give you, a, I'll give you an excerpt from a text. Uh, it's a famous... Uh, it comes from a famous document, and see if you can guess... Uh, what the what the text uh, is the document is what they here, Sorry. in this the the excerpt says those are not at all to be tolerated who deny the being of a God, promises, covenants, and oaths which are the bounds of human society can have no hold upon an atheist the taking away of God though but even in thought is also. I think this also uh, summarizes pretty well what the argument is for anti atheist dislike. Can you guess what the document is I don't that's an interesting. <laughs> John Locke. <laughs> they're so let's tolerate all everyone who's religious except atheists. So why would that be? Now atheists are not that common. They're not pop, they're not that strong or, pop, uh, or or you know they're not even cohesive, you know, despite Professor Dawkins' efforts. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> not working on Catholic, I think that should be added. Yes. Was not he? Oh, no. Okay, I didn't that's know. That. Okay. So, so atheists and Catholic Catholics. Huh? Uh, so why would people have, have a strong dislike? Uh, why would religious people in particular have a strong uh, dislike of atheists? Uh, so from an evolutionary point of view, if you take a functional perspective on, on prejudice, uh, and increasingly social psychologists are doing that, you realize that not all prejudices are created equal. People have uh, prejudices towards different groups for different reasons. Uh, So for example, it appears that the main uh, source of prejudice in America towards African Americans is fear of physical harm, (laughs) especially towards black men. whereas, for example, the, the, the source of prejudice towards uh, homosexuals is, is some kind of moral disgust. So there are different kinds of uh, psychological sources towards towards dislike, even though if you only measure dislike or if you look at sociological data on uh, people's you know aversions, you can't tell what the origin is. So taking a functionalist approach to anti-Atheist prejudice and knowing what we know about the religion's connection with uh, building uh, cohesive communities, we would expect that uh, possibly the, the, the source of anti-Atheist prejudice is uh, some believe that as John Locke articulates in, in that text, some believe that you can't trust an atheist because they're not going to be nice with me they're not going to co- They're not gonna be cooperative it's the theory that free, free thinkers are free writers basically uh, a couple of more uh, um, you know, more hard data on anti-Atheist prejudice uh, the um, uh, the sociologists Edgel Gert- and Hartman have uh, have a very nice paper on this, by the way, uh, in which they they look at sociological data. And if you compare atheists with uh, the standard kinds of questions sociologists <coughs> ask, for example, would you is it okay for your son or daughter to marry someone of the following groups? And then you, you give them these options. What you find is that atheists are the only group that can't make um, that can't. Uh, you know, across the majority line. Um, so basically they the top list of the most, the most disapproved groups. If you look at historical patterns, what you find is that, uh, you know, uh, a, a nice pattern showing that most prejudices have been declining, so there's much more... Appro- this is a question about would you vote uh, someone of, of your own p- political preference if this person was and then Catholic, Jewish, African-American, homosexual, atheist. And what you find is that there's, there's improvement, the uh, greater acceptance of pretty much every group except for atheists, where there is a little bit of an improvement, but not much. And again, you can't, you know, be, even, you know even in the case of gays, you have a 50% in 1999 who say, yes, I would vote someone who's gay, but only 40% I really who yeah. say that I would vote for an atheist president. Okay, so given the logic that I just presented to you, so the idea is that if, if, if belief in moral gods is encouraging trust and cooperation in groups, then if someone who doesn't believe in such a god is someone who's sending a really wrong signal, right? They're saying that I'm not going to be cooperative. As a result, I'm not going to be trustworthy, etc., etc. As a result, people feel, might might feel like, well, I can't trust this person in domains, especially where trust is relevant. Um, so we we followed up on this idea and we, we did a study where we uh, looked at anti atheist prejudice uh, and decomposed this, this tendency into 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 the psychological origin. So as a comparison group, we looked at uh, gay men. So here in the in the top panel, uh, you can see that uh, we just gave people a feeling thermometer. This is a very standard way of uh, measuring prejudice. You ask people on a scale of 0 to 100, how warmly or coldly do you feel towards this group, okay, compared to g- people in general. Uh, this is an anonymous survey, so there's some assurance that people are expressing what they believe, although we can, we can never be sure. Uh, and what you find is that again atheists we ask other groups as well and atheists are always at the bottom uh, at 45% um, compared to people in general especially but then when we measure people's feelings of distrust towards atheists what we find is that atheists are distrusted relative to uh, our comparison group gay men whereas uh, gay men score higher on undiscussed relative to Uh, So people are not disgusted by atheists. They just just don't trust them. (laughs) If that's any consolation. Now, I'm always skeptical about measures that are based on self-reports. I I think, you know, self-reports are fine, but we we also want to make sure that we have uh, other evidence that complements self-reports and make sure that it's not... You know, people are saying it because they don't, you know, they have to or they feel social pressure, etc. So we did an uh, implicit measure of prejudice. This is the implicit association task where the IAT, where we, we give people, people are sitting on a computer, we give them a task where uh, they have to respond uh, as, as, as fast as they can to associations. So uh, we had two conditions here. Sometimes the association was atheist and then dislike words, or atheists and distrust words. And what you find is that people, much uh, and then we measure how fast people are responding to them. This is a measure of how cognitively accessible this, these two constructs are, how, how much one activates the other. And we find two things here. One is that people sh- show a much stronger tendency to distrust atheists than to dislike them. But the more interesting finding here is that when we measure belief in God, uh, which correlates very strongly with this prejudice, by the way i didn 't mention that that, uh, that all, in all its data that we have collected on anti this prejudice, the strongest predictor we have is belief in God, which is not surprising, but what is interesting, more interesting, the twist here is that belief in God is a stronger predictor of distrust than dislike, and when we put this well, the information in a regression, uh, once we control for uh, this distrust, this, this dislike is no longer significant. So really, what's what's driving uh, the prejudice? We believe is distrust, not dislike. And we have other evidence that corroborates that finding. Okay. So that was uh, the third part of my talk, uh, which again is is important. helps understand the limits of religious prosociality. Now, in the final part of my talk, if I have some time, I hope, you about, uh, Five minutes. Five you minutes? Yeah. minutes? Okay. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about some uh, another line of work that I've, I've, I've done with Jeremy Ginges and Ian Hansen where we have to, we would take a different perspective on this question about religion and intolerance. In this case we're interested in looking at different elements of religion and to see if we can get leverage that way to understand this complex relation between religion and, and uh, parochial altruism. Why suicide attacks? Um, it's an extreme form of uh, parochial altruism as I said. Uh, there's been a dramatic worldwide rise of suicide attacks since the year 2000. Um, and in fact, uh, ever since the invasion of Iraq, suicide attack has skyrocketed as a, as a method of, of, um, of I guess, killing people, but also has huge psychological and political impact, of course, on societies. Uh, what's interesting about, uh, for us, for our purposes of this conference, is that uh, most suicide attacks are carried out by religious groups. I put that in quotes because there is some debate in this literature about what that means. So what we can say is that uh, the majority of groups who who are sponsored suicide attacks say that they are somehow inspired by religion. Although what people say and what people do is not always necessarily compatible, so we have to take that with a grain of salt. And the other important element to appreciate uh, here is that we're, here we studied support for suicide attacks, not the actual suicide attackers, but support is very crucial to understand the prevalence of suicide attacks because organizations who sponsor suicide attacks are highly sensitive to how, support, how much support they get active and passive from, from the relevant populations. So the question then is, does religion encourage support for suicide attacks? Uh, I think that question should be refined further because it's, it's a bit of a it's a too big, big of a question. So uh, we devised two possible scenarios or two possible hypotheses. There is the there is the belief, um, and, and sorry, um, I'm going to go quickly here. Uh, there are different elements of religion, of course, uh, as we know. There is a devo- devotional or belief component of religion, and there is of course the coalitional component of religion. Uh, in the form of collective participation. These are correlated, but not so highly that we cannot decompose statistically, these associations. And then the, we refine the question, we ask, do different components of religion have different consequences for suicide, uh, for support for this kind of extreme parochial altruism? So we have two hypotheses on the table. There's a religious belief hypothesis that says that the more you believe in God or the more you believe in uh, other beliefs, based things about religion the afterlife perhaps um, the more people are going to be supportive of these kinds of uh, violent acts that involve sac- self-sacrifice and then there's the coalitional commitment hypothesis which says that maybe it's not so much the belief component that is, that is producing this support for spiritual altruism but it's participation including participation in ritual uh, in this in this uh, in this th- research, we focused on uh, prayer as as opposed to religious um, uh, attendance. The reason we looked at prayer and not believing God is because in some of the populations we studied, uh, support for satellites, Obviously, uh, the the, the uh, number one place we went was uh, Palestine. Uh, believing God is at ceiling, so we there's no variability, so we can't ask the question. But we, what we can do is look at frequency of prayer, which. We know from other research is highly correlated with belief. So, I have, I'm, gonna, I don't need too much time on this. So I'm going because they're pretty simple straightforward studies. So I'm gonna go ahead and show you the results one by one. Uh, so in, in study one we had Muslim Palestinians that represent representative sample. We measured uh, how frequent uh, we measured how much people supported uh, attacks, suicide attacks against Israelis. Uh, Then we looked at frequency of prayer, frequency of mosque attendance, and then we controlled a bunch of things, and we did the regressions. In study two, we looked at the student sample, uh, university student uh, samples in in the West Bank. And in this case, actually, it's a highly relevant population because one out of every two suicide attackers, in the case of Palestinians, uh, is a university student. So these are people who are actually likely to be suicide attackers. Uh, then we, ha- we looked at, a, uh, we did have a, an actual experimental manipulation where we looked at support for violence against Palestinians uh, that involved sexual attack of <coughs> Jewish settlers in the West Bank and finally a cross cultural sample. this sorry this is just to in case you had any doubts that people uh, uh, who populations uh, where suicide attackers come from consider the suicide attackers as martyrs not murderers so just in case you had any doubts uh, that just just comes from a newspaper report about one suicide attackers um, all right so here are the results. So, we, uh, so the question was, do we support martyrdom attacks against Israel? Uh, what we found was regular attendance. So we did uh, what's called logistic regression, which, um, if you're interested, I can tell you more about that later, but we had to do a particular kind of analysis that are robust against violations of normality because we had non-normal data. What we found was regular attendance were more than twice as likely to support suicide attack, attacks against Israelis than non-regular Uh, Attenders, but no independent effect of prayer frequency that we we found. And we had a number of controls. Um, The the, the asterisks uh, under under some of the control variables are are variables that also have an impact, significant impact on support for suicide attacks. But what's interesting is that uh, these are not counter explanations for the fact that attendance increased. uh, Support for suicide attacks. So, so support for the peace process. The more people support the peace process, the less likely they support suicide attacks. Mm-hmm. And the more people said that they supported uh, an Islamic State in Palestine, the more likely they support, they also um, uh, supported suicide attacks. In the second study, we changed our our dependent measure a little bit just to make sure that that wording is not affecting our results. So in this case, we asked them, do you think that Islam encourages or or requires or forbids uh, martyrdom attacks? And then we counted people who said requires or encourages (coughs) versus not. Once again, we found a strong effect of attendance. So... Regular attendants were three and a half times more likely to say, yes, we support suicide attacks compared to non-regular attendants, but again, no effect of prayer frequency. And again, uh, we added a number of other, other uh, variables here to, to control for important other possible counter-explanations, and, and the results held. R, right, can you say what
0: percentage that is of people saying it supports?
1: Uh, in the 2006 study it was much higher than in the 1999 study possibly because uh, I think in the 1999 in study it was less than 30% in the 2006 study it was much higher but I can't remember exactly how much I can tell you later if you want ok uh, moving around so then we want to know is this something about Islam something about time up ok uh, okay, all right. I'm, I'm going to st- uh, start winding up soon. Um, so, so we want to know if this is something unique about the context of Palestine or, what is, or, or, is, or, or something about Islam, something about Palestinian Islam, that attendance is encouraging uh, parochial altruism, or something more general about attendance. And so we did a study with these religious scepters, and in addition here in this, experiment, in this study, we added a manipulation where instead of asking people, do you attend synagogue, do you, or how frequently do you attend synagogue, how frequently do you pray, we actually did a manipulation where we reminded people of, I said, we, we basically, for half of our participants, we said, uh, or one-third of our participants, we reminded them of praying, the other third we reminded them of Uh, Attending synagogue and the other third were control, And then we asked them a question about uh, this attack about Baruch Goldstein, which is the closest thing we could find of of, uh, something like suicide attacks against Palestinians, where Baruch Goldstein walked into a mosque and started opening fire and was killed. We asked people, how heroic do you think Goldstein's act was? And here are the results. Uh, In the... Now prime condition, 15% of the settlers said that it was extremely heroic. Uh, In the synagogue prime condition, that increased significantly. Uh, But in the prayer prime condition, actually we had a decrease. And it was a marginally significant decrease from the control. Uh, If anything, in this case, thinking about prayer decreased uh, support for this act. So it doesn't seem like it's something unique about uh, Palestinian Islam. Finally, we wanted to be more, a bit more certain, so we did a cross-cultural study uh, with a variety of major religions. With, we had 4,700 uh, participants. This was a, uh, data that we got from the BBC where they had a major world survey of religious beliefs, and we re- reanalyzed it. And we measured parochial altruism by a combination of agreement, agreeing with two statements. I am willing to die for my God or beliefs, and I blame other religions for the problems of the world. And again, we found a similar pattern. Although there was important cross-cultural variability, whenever there was a significant effect, it was prayer, uh, sorry, it was uh, attendance, increasing support for pro altruism. Prayer had usually no effects. Uh, and uh, if you're curious about the cross-cultural variability, um, we can talk about it. Uh, but one interesting thing we found was that the Human Development Index was, was, was one explanation uh, where... Uh, countries high on the human development index were less likely to show this pattern. Okay. Um, I think I'm going to skip this uh, because it's about possible alternatives to the data on the suicide attacks, but if you're interested feel free to ask me about it. Something about this, Okay, I didn't say religious attendance is bad because we know that there are some positive effects of religious attendance. I didn't say that political and historical context is not important. Of course, you know you need certain political and historical and possibly economic conditions for uh, for suicide attacks to to become a, a realistic uh, strategy. Um, I don't know what's going on with this. Uh... Okay. Okay, uh, this is my last for the slide. I apologize for taking longer than I should. Um, so, uh, religious conflict and religious prosociality are really two sides of the same coin. That's the argument that I'm, that at least I want to put on the table. Uh, and another in- important, and possibly and interesting uh, way to think about this is that different aspects of religion may have very different consequences for pro- altruism. And finally. Uh, I think one interesting, important uh, uh, possible research for the future is to see whether or not reframing, reframing, psychologically reframing what group boundaries are could make a big difference in terms of uh, extending for sociality as much as we can as long as we have religions and we have to deal with them.
0: Well, that was a very uh, uh, complex and dense paper, and I thank you for it. Uh, Here are some of my concerns. The first one is uh, whether or not what you're dealing with is, in uh, a real sense, a natural phenomenon. So we talk a lot about religion without qualifying it any further. Um, And since the middle of the 19th century when we've spoken of religion, we've tended to focus on exemplars such as Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, the world religions they're often called. Um, Yet I wonder whether or not uh, these are... Uh, something of an outlier in in terms of the the kinds of religious phenomena that we are trying to explain. So it seems to me what you've talked about today feeds into the costly commitment hypothesis and and the idea of religion as uh, a cohesive mechanism in societies. But these are in particular sorts of societies. These are in high-density populations uh, with uh, a great degree of communication, technology, and so on and so forth. And I wondered to what extent um, what you're dealing with is more of a sociological phenomenon than it is something uh, sort of more general. How would these results play out if you started to assess the same sorts of prosocial issues in foraging societies, in traditional societies, uh, and so on and so forth? Have you done that work? I'd be very interested to know. Um, it seems to me that uh, the religion that you're looking at is very much in what's called wrongly well, the, the Abrahamic traditions. Uh, so does it play out the same way for, for example, Confucian societies, uh, where, you know, clearly there's, a, there's a, uh, an, an aspect of Confucianism which is directly relevant to things like my uh, second uh, concern, or, or question really, is that this looks very much like a, an argument for reciprocal altruism of the kind that we see in evolutionary biology. Um, so, um, you know, the, 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 the famous comment by Haldane: he would lay down his life for two brothers and was it eight cousins? Yes, but that's not reciprocal altruism. In, in selection, selection okay. sorry, yes. But, Okay, so when you when you're talking about um, uh, these sorts of uh, games that, that you know trust game, take game, in in the context of something like a, a prisoner's dilemma, um, I'm wondering uh, whether or not uh, what you're dealing with is simply um, uh, something which falls out of dealing with in group and out group. So once you've you specified you've got an in-group, by definition you've got an out-group, and you've got to have people limit their, uh, uh, their altruistic <coughs> behaviors up to the in-group. So once you have these markers, these these uh, religious markers. Um, uh, and it looks like what's going on is a coordination of uh, sharing of resources or something like that. And would you like to comment on that? I think I'll link there to comment on that.
1: Okay. Um I understood your first question, but I'm not sure if I got your second question right. So, um, are you? Your second question refers to, to the to the game studies. Yes. Okay. Yes. Are you asking if, if they can be explained by kin selection? Partly. I, so,
0: in in a in a traditional society, so I'm, I'm very interested in how this plays out in, in traditional society. Okay. In a traditional society, as we said before, we know that. Um, individuals know individually okay. what their relationship, okay, got okay. uh, their relationship coefficient is to other individuals in that society and to agree on in Okay, thank you. When you're dealing with a society where you don't know your relatedness, which are high-density societies of that kind okay. um, uh, you have to deal with these sort of abstract markers and so I'm wondering whether you think that might be a, a good account of
1: yeah, so I think I, I got it now. Uh, yeah, so so m- my take on, on religion and pro-sociality is that it's, it's actually a recent phenomenon. It's a culturally evolved solution to the problem of, of uh, coordination and cooperation in large anonymous groups. So I definitely think that in, in hunter-gatherer societies or the ancestral societies that, that were uh, a bit like modern hunter-gatherer societies, you have small groups, relationships are transparent, people are uh, genetically related to each other to some extent, and everybody knows everyone. So in these transparent societies, you don't need religion to police people. So I wouldn't expect to have moral big gods. I wouldn't expect that thinking about uh, spirits or gods would make people more pro-social in this, necessarily, in these small-scale frozen societies. I would expect that these are effects that are as part product of modern organized religions. So, in effect, you're
0: saying religion is something that's evolved in high
1: density. Uh, well, this things. kind of religion. So, I think that there is still religion in uh, in hunter mm-hmm. gatherer societies, but there, you know, they don't involve, for example. So, there's belief in spirits, there's belief in uh, ancestor spirits, there is ritual, et cetera, But you don't have this kind of moralized religion, I would say. And it seems like the ethnographic evidence. It, uh, is is consistent with that idea. Which gets back to my
0: first question. So is this a natural phenomenon that we're dealing with? Or is this culture is,
1: is natural. Well, culture nothing, is natural. There's nothing not unnatural about culture. It's going so, to be a, a single unitary set of phenomenon. So, so the, the the story that I favor is a combination of genetic evolution and cultural evolution. And both are natural phenomena. And they interact with each other in interesting ways. So there is cultural variability on how moralized gods are there's cultural variability on how much religion seems to promote uh, pro-social tendencies but that's part of the story I think still this is part of the uh, project of naturalizing religion, there's no, no change in that